Hello and welcome everyone uh, with a new episode of Cider Podcast. Um, today I have with me Doug Laney, um, who is an ex-vice president of Gartner, uh, writer of Infonomics. We're going to be talking about um, a lot of things and that are um, of very interest uh, to our community in data science and artificial intelligence. But before we do, I uh, just want to let you know that to continue these conversations even after the interview, you can join the Slack community that I have. Um, on CIDA. Uh, you could also listen to this podcast on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Um, and feel free to drop any comments during the conversation. Um, Doug, let's start with um, something that you talked in your book um, about a 12-year-old kid wearing space pajamas starting at the TV, <laughs> during the TV screen, the night man landed on the moon. So tell us more about that kid. <laughs> That's a great question. So. Um, I was about five five years old, and my I'd just kind of gone to sleep, and I was I was all into kind of the whole space race, and yes, I had spaceman pajamas, and probably the the solar system hanging on a mobile from above my my bed, and <clears throat> as I'm kind of going to to sleep um, one night in in July of uh, 1969, my um, father uh, wakes me up and he says, Douglas, it's it's time. And we um, head down to the, the television, the black and white television, and he adjusts the, the antennas, right? Um, and we watch the first steps on the, uh, or the moon landing, actually. And um, my father was a world-class engineer, and he was, you know, he could have described how all of the actuators and the electromechanical components of the, the lunar lander probably worked if he had been given a, you know, a schematic. Um, but he was more impressed and, and moved by the fact that this was streaming into our living room and you know millions or billions of other living rooms around the, around the world, and so it, it, I guess it made an impression on me that it was more uh, that it was more about the information that we were seeing um, than the fact that we had actually landed. That was more more incredible, um, or at least as in, as incredible. And I think as we start to look at the the ramifications of the moon landing and its impact on, say, the um, the Cold War. Um, you know, the information at a macro level has a, a, a takes on an entirely different kind of context. So, uh, perhaps that's what inspired me to, to kind of continue my journey into the the realm of of information and and data and content. So, yeah, I think that um, the sheer enormity um, of the whole experience and what it takes to drive a project of that nature um, probably led you to talk about assisting organizations with data monetization and valuation, open and syndicated data, data governance, and big database innovation. Yeah. And these are way too many big words for someone new to these <laughs> terms. So I was just wondering, what is infonomics for dummies? Right, so infonomics is just the, the basic idea that data is an actual economic asset, is, a, is an actual asset, and should be treated like one. You know, a lot of people talk about data as uh, as an asset or talk about data as the new oil, right? But um, there's a lot more to it than, than, than that. Data has unique economic characteristics compared to oil, and um, unfortunately, data is not considered a, a balance sheet asset according to the accounting profession, which, um, it leads to all sorts of bad behaviors and uh, suboptimal behaviors by by organizations and, and and business leaders. So the idea behind infonomics is to one understand information's unique economic uh, attributes 
and uh, uh, apply them in a, in a business model context. But then also, um, I think it's incumbent to, to, to um, measure and manage and monetize data as an actual asset. Um. We consultants, especially the research one, they're notorious for you know throwing in big terms, confusing people, and raking in a yeah. lot of bills. Yeah. But let's put that in context. Um, you said in your Forbes article uh, about high risk England that it doesn't matter that current accounting regulations such as IFRS and the US GAAP mm -hmm. generally prohibit prohibit reporting the value of data on balance sheets. They care about putting data to work, um, and the data valuation for high risk England, according to the article, was two hundred million pounds. Mm -hmm. And for some, that might be hard to establish, the, both the methodology and how you evaluated that. So right. if you could walk us through the process of um, and validity of such valuations, I'm thinking of affiliate agreements, sponsorships, outright data transfer, and analytics-only information. Um, and I remember one of the um, conversations that you had, um, we're going to be talking more about that, um, when you were selling your house um, and the information, in the house was on the Zillow, and Zillow is missing out the, on the opportunity right. that they could make it some money off of your information if they could relate it to people like moving people, um, U-Haul, mm -hmm. and um, other companies. So talk about it um, in the context of mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you evaluate this information? Yeah, well, the, the story about um, selling our home was more about the, the bank itself and that um, when you put your house on the market here, at least in the, in the U.S. and in other countries, the, the listing for the home goes into a big database that's available pretty much for everybody to, to see nowadays. Uh, Zillow is an aggregator of that, that data from what's called the multiple listing service here in the U.S. Um, and um, as soon as your, your house goes uh, on the market, yeah, everybody starts contacting you, the the, the, the fly-by-night mortgage companies, the moving companies, the painters, the landscapers. Um, you know, you start get it, getting everyone kind of reaching out to you to, to get a piece of the, the action when you're, when you're moving. Now, the only company that it seems didn't reach out to us was our own bank. And we bank with one of the, the largest banks in the U.S. by way of acquisition um, over the years. And um, what a terribly missed a terribly missed opportunity for the bank to reach out to us to offer us a mortgage, offer us a home equity line, um, introduce us to our new branch wherever we're going to be moving to help us move the stuff in our safety deposit box to um, print us new checks um, with our, our, our new you know address on them. So an entirely missed opportunity. And I'm thinking, how difficult would, would it have been for them to you know hire some high school programmer? Give them a can of Red Bull, you know, <laughs> and I'm not a sponsor, energy drink, um, and uh, and a bag of chips, and say, listen, match the um, the, the the customer, the, the individuals in the or the households in the MLS database to our customer database, so we know who's moving, right? And then you know, then we can reach out to them proactively. So um, it's it's not hard. Some of these ideas for using data and monetizing data. And analytics are, are pretty stupid simple. Just um, companies, just I guess because they're not thinking about data as a as an asset, um, they they don't they don't uh, manage it like one, and and they don't generate economic benefits from it as the, they would with other uh, other assets. I mean, I think that that's kind of an idea which um, people would think that you know we don't need Gartner consultants for that. I mean, we can mm -hmm. figure that out. But you know, the other evaluations, like I mentioned in your Forbes 
article about 200 million uh, for um, Hybrid England. That's a big mm -hmm. one. And people would, you know, think twice about that. You know, how did you come for that? So mm -hmm. if you would just go out and hire this big four and ask them to actually audit yeah. that valuation, um, what would be the process to do that? Um, you have talked about different pricing models. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying the big four couldn't do that, but I'm just saying they, they typically don't. Um, it's not part of their, their model to help companies understand the value of their data. I actually brought the idea of data valuation to one of the big four um, when I was working with them uh, about 10 years ago or so. And they outright dismissed the idea. I said, well, one, from an M&A perspective, right? How does a private equity firm um, understand the value of the, the company that they're acquiring or taking public or merging um, if they don't fully assess all of its assets, including its data assets. And um, I don't know, I brought the idea to them and they, they pretty much readily dismissed it. Now the, the firm that I'm with right now, West Monroe, um, actually has an active um, uh, business in helping organizations, uh, particularly pr the private equity firms, um, understand the, the, do the technical diligence on, on M&A deals and, and carve outs. And so part of what we're starting to offer now is that data valuation process where where they can understand the the value of the data assets that are being acquired or, or merged um, and not just to understand their value but understand their oppor opportunity so as you're bringing two companies together there are opportunities to merge that data in new and innovative innovative ways so a, a private equity firm that has a portfolio of companies can think about how to combine that data in ways that can be monetized in, in new and in innovative ways um, to create new new kinds of value streams, so the the, the process for for valuing data is really I, I mean all I've done in Infonomics is really just adapt the way that um, valuation experts and accountants would value any kind of asset using the cost approach, the market approach, and the income approach. Now the cost approach looks at what is uh, that at what is um, what does it cost to acquire or to generate that asset, that data asset. Um, um, the market approach looks at what could we sell that data asset for, um, or what could we trade trade it for? Um, and one of the interesting, you know, economic qualities of data is that it's a it's a non-rivalrous, non-depleting asset, which means you can use it multiple ways simultaneously, and you can use it again and again without it depleting, which makes it again very different than than something like oil. So when you're con considering the market value of data, you have to look at the um, the aggregate value that can be generated by a, a piece of data, a unit of data, a portfolio of, of data over and over um, within, within a market. Um, so it's kind of a, an aggregate value and, and there's an optimization kind of um, consideration there as well in that if you price it very high, very few people will buy it. Um, if you price it lower, more, more people will buy it, but eventually you start saturating a market and devalue the, the data asset. So there's a bit of an optimization um, um, concept built into that, that market value model. And then the third model is the income approach, which is what is that uh, uh, data assets contribution to a revenue stream or expense savings? Um, so where things get really interesting is where we find companies combine these models, where they identify data that has a, uh, a relatively low um, um, cost basis, but that the value they're generating on top of it is, is fairly marginal. So they should be looking at ways to generate more and more value to grow the, um, the, the margin that they're generating on top of that data to, to, be, to better amortize it. So um, that's something that we're, you know, that I'm helping organizations with. 
So what would your advice be, um, or even better put you in the position of um, CDO at Netflix? Um, <laughs> how would you use this three pricing on a ballpark um, to monetize your data? Um, well, again, to, to monetize the data or to value the data? Oh, you have all three portions of that, monetize, value, and measure, right? Right. So so uh, you, you want to talk about monetizing yeah. the data now? Yes, I mean, if you okay. were to put out the CDO position on Netflix. Right. Okay, so so really with any with any company, when it comes to monetizing their data, it's about looking at all of the stakeholders that could potentially find value in that data or in analytics related to that data. And most companies are only looking very inwardly at their own business functions, their sales functions, their marketing functions, and so forth. But there's this world of, of um, external... Um, extended business ecosystem of suppliers and partners and customers and customers, partners and suppliers, customers and so forth that might find value in the data that you compile. Um, you know, we often find that one person's trash is, is another person's treasure. Um, there's some really great business models that scoop up data from an industry and then and then you know repackage it. So the, the process that we go through with companies is to one, identify all these potential stakeholders in the extended um, business ecosystem, um, understand their personas, their um, needs, what's driving their 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 business, um, and then kind of map that to the data that is available that we can make available and see if there's anything that that makes sense. Um, when I run these workshops, we we also um, um, request um, recommend that they invite a key customer, supplier, partner into these workshops. Now, the other thing that we do is we look at hypotheses. So we look at kind of the business model and say, what are some things that we'd like to know about the business or like to decide or ways that we'd like to move the business that we can't because we don't really understand the data well enough or we're not using the data well enough. Now, many companies are kind of stuck doing um, what's called hindsight-oriented analytics. They're looking at, you know, they're building pretty pie charts or bouncy bar charts or dashing dashboards, right, to, to analyze data in hindsight. Um, but they're not focusing enough on doing what we call diagnostic or predictive or prescriptive kinds of analytics. Um, and those are the kinds of uh, analytics that really move the needle uh, much more on, on the business. Um, so we, we look at um, ways to evolve the kinds of hindsight-oriented questions into more foresight-oriented questions. Um, we also do this by looking at um, a number of use cases. So over the years, I've compiled nearly 500 use cases on how organizations are monetizing data in a variety of ways. Um, and we, we bring forward some of those ideas and we explore how we could tease them apart and adapt them to, to your own business model. We also look at the number of patterns, the, the various patterns that exist for monetizing data from using it internally to improve business process performance, to improving relationships, to baking it into products and services, to extracting it from products and services and selling it outright, bartering or trading information um, in exchange for commercial um, uh, terms, uh, commercial uh, goods and services or favorable commercial terms. Um, selling data for cash or putting it on, you know, data marketplaces. There's also a, um, a way that we've been working with clients, um, what I call an inverted data monetization model, where I can't sell you my customer data, but I can sell your stuff to my customers. Um, I can't sell you my customer data because of regulatory, you know, restrictions like GDPR or, um, or, or, uh, or others uh, that vary by industry. But um, I can sell 
others' products and services to my customers and take a referral fee or a, or a commission on that. So these are some of the exercises that we go through during the data monetization ideation process. Once we've generated a number of ideas, then we go into a feasibility assessment. Where we're looking at the feasibility of ideas on, on multiple dimensions. Are they ethically feasible, legally feasible, operationally feasible, managerially feasible, um, economically feasible, and so forth. Um, and then we kind of see what floats to the top. Um, and then we engage on you know building out those data products or data solutions um, in, a, in a much more kind of technical realm. I think we can agree on the fact that you know, there are people who would desperately need um, this information. Um, Gartner does one of the largest um, surveys around the world um, mm. of CEOs, CIOs in different industries, uh, multicultural, uh, multicultural mm. samples, um, which I regularly go through. And then we have got Statista um, that sells a lot of that. And then we've got a lot of other companies mm. um, with large data sets um, and market reports that would be um, very interesting uh, to a lot of um, hedge fund capitals, um, other organizations going into different verticals. Uh, right. And uh, one of the things um, that I, because I want to dwell on this question a little bit to make it more understandable for a lot of people who, for who the idea is very perplexing. Um, you have a very funny way of putting uh, things. So I was reading this um, Wall Street Journal code um, that you were coded in, um, it's flummoxing. The companies have better accounting for their office furniture than their information asset. And he also said that um, you can't manage what you don't measure. Right. Um, and if we were to dwell on this point, I mean, it's all good that you, we conduct uh, workshops and you know, bring in um, the clients and uh, brainstorm a way to measure that. But in the end, that's not something that you can put on uh, your books that's a very hard process to do. And I guess that's where the genius of Infonomics comes in, that uh, it combines the information, economics, and a lot of other disciplines. Uh, mm -hmm. But to quantify that on a um, balance sheet, that's something that a lot of people would find um, quite hard. So if you could just dwell on this a little bit and explain how that actually works. Sure. Well, let's first review kind of the accounting you know, regulations, which, which um, I'll tell you, you know, a little story. After 9-11, um, after the 9-11 terror attacks, some um, companies lost their, their data in the Twin Towers. And this was in the days before cloud and offsite backups. Um, so companies actually lost their, their data. Um, they didn't know who their customers were, their employees were. They lost contracts, transaction data, and it became a real existential event for them. So what they did, uh, some of them would submit claims to their insurance companies for the value of the data they lost, and they just kind of estimated what was the impact on the business, the insurance companies um, rejected those claims, suggesting that data wasn't property, and therefore was not covered by their property and casualty policies. Um, this kind of caught my attention um, while I was at Gartner, and I helped some of the companies quantify the value of their, their data to kind of uh, understand the, the, the loss. Um, but again, the, the, the insurance companies rejected the claims. And what the insurance industry did in the U.S. was update the, the, the template um, used for commercial general liability policies to ex uh, expressly prohibit um, or exclude electronic data from PNC policies. They did that a month after 9-11 to add further insult to, to injury. Now, the accounting profession followed suit and said, listen, if the insurance industry is not going to recognize data as property, we're no longer going to recognize it or allow anyone to recognize it as an asset. And they updated a, a key financial standard, um, IAS uh, 38, which deals with how to recognize certain kinds of intangibles. 
and um, inserted some language prohibiting the capitalization um, of, of, of uh, data um, you know, on balance sheets. So that's kind of where we, we are today, where you know, most of the industry is trying to move forward and, and you know, leverage and think about data as an actual asset, but the keepers of the definition of what constitutes property and what constitutes an asset have doubled down on their antiquated and, and arcane notions that, it, that it's not. Um, and, and my hypothesis is that this is something that's been really holding back organizations. Now, today, if you wanted to include the value of your data on the balance sheet, you cannot do so, but there's no reason that you can't do it for internal purposes um, to create a supplemental balance sheet. And this is what you know many companies have done in certain circumstances, like the uh, the airlines, United Airlines and American Airlines and Delta recently um, went through some effort to kind of quantify the value of their uh, customer loyalty data so that they could um, collateralize it for loans. And what's interesting about this, um, is, as I wrote about in Forbes, is that the value of their customer loyalty programs was deemed to be two to three times more valuable than the companies themselves. Um, which is which is fascinating. So I think that um, you know they're not alone. I think most companies will find that the value of their data, when they start looking at its potential, has more value than perhaps any other asset that the company has. Um, and it's just that the uh, you know the insurance uh, industry and the the accounting profession have kind of been um, you know holding us back. So. Yeah. You're on mute. Sorry. Um, so what I meant is that, you know, off the books, you can definitely do that. And everyone should do that in order to measure the information flow. Um, but mm -hmm. I guess, again, in the insurance context, um, when it comes to government regulation and everything else, uh, just like claiming a $500 loss of iPhone uh, for a $5,000, um, you know, a claim that that's right. something where it gets a little bit tricky. But let's, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're going to get back to that. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Chicago Cubs. Uh, <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> you have been a lifelong fan, I believe. Um, what if there was a scenario that they decided at some point that, you know, in order to get their stats um, and scores and performance, you'd have to pay? Um, and well, thanks to your own book. Um, <laughs> you know, how does it actually look like from a consumer perspective? Um, well, there are companies that um, that. Uh, in the, it's not the Cubs really, not any individual baseball team that owns its stats. It's uh, it's they're they're a major league franchise. So the major league um, MLB owns the the you know the rights to that that data, and they make it available to various statisticians who produce more insights and analyses on that that data. So the MLB actually does make a revenue stream by selling its data or licensing it to statistical companies. So um, your hope is that MLB is going to do it for you. Um, for for the for the baseball so team. That, so they pay Chicago Cubs, and then you still have the access to that. Right, right. But I think you know each team has its own statisticians that try to analyze data and come up with new algorithms and in their own ways, and they keep them very proprietary. You know, this goes back to the the days of of the Moneyball story, right? Billy Bean mm -hmm. and the and the Oakland A's. So, um, you know, a lot of companies have statisticians now uh, or, or data scientists who are crunching, you know, numbers for that, for that team. Mm -hmm. I think what I meant was that, you know, if the, they shove the price model down to the customers, 
and not um, the MLB. I mean, how would you feel about that? I mean, now you can think also from a consumer's perspective and not um, an analyst's perspective. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that would work in, in what you know actual value a consumer would have in statistical data other other than for you know info infotainment purposes. So um, that's a little bit difficult to, to quantify. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, if they would include this price into the season ticket or um, an app that you use. Oh, I'm sure they uh, do. I'm sure they oh, do. Oh, they do? Well, I'm sure they do. I mean, if you have to hire um, uh, data scientists and statisticians, you have to pass that expense along somehow in terms of, you know, ticket sales or, or something else. Um, Doug, you also worked uh, for Deloitte um, Analytics Institute, and mm -hmm. um, you helped them grow multi-billion dollar uh, analytics business through marketing, social media, yeah. thought leadership, internal education, sales support, and a lot of that. Right. Um, there's an estimated around 10 million um, data sets around um, that people can play with, you know, use for their own mm -hmm. um, purposes. Open, open data models. Sets. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering, you already talked about the fact that um, it, it's really hard for you to convince the big four of uh, the information, uh, importance of data mm -hmm. monetization. I mean, mm -hmm. you were doing just fine at Deloitte. I mean, why wouldn't they listen to you? Um, I, I'm not sure that's something I really prepared to talk about publicly, but um, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it's something they just weren't weren't ready for at the time. Okay. So, yeah. well, in general, I guess you know we could open this question uh, in a broader mm -hmm. context. What are the um, restrictions for organizations, and what what mindset do they have generally uh, when they have resistance against ideas like um, monetizing the information and assets? Um, the, the general resistance against monetizing data is a bit of a naivete around um, exposing you know personal data. There certainly are ways to. Uh, redact or encrypt or um, aggregate, uh, you know, uh, you know, or, or remove, you know, personally identifiable information. Um, other companies, it becomes a bit of a reputational issue. I mean, uh, so I, I met um, with a, and I can tell this story. It's, it's, uh, they, they talk about it publicly. Um, Allstate Insurance um, gets a call from, um, I think it was General Motors. And they said, listen, we want to buy or license your automobile claims data so that we can analyze it to build better and safer cars. Well, that's a win-win-win for everybody, right? For the consumer, for the automobile maker, and for the insurance company. But um, Allstate said, you know, listen, the problem is we're considered the good hands company. That's their, their motto. And we can't be seen as selling our customer data um, even you know for for any purpose, even if we again redact it and anonymize it and, and so forth. Um, so what I suggested to their their head of uh, of analytics at at Allstate was um, was why don't you know this is not a data issue, it's not a technology issue, it's a it's a reputational issue. So why not take this idea off brand, start a separate company or create a joint venture to do it? And within seven months, they had launched. Um, Arity, A-R-I-T-Y. It's a platform for um, not just Allstate, but for, I think for any in insurance company to monetize its data. So sometimes the resistance is, is reputational. Sometimes it is, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, overzealous lawyers. <laughs> um, and, and very often it's, it's a mindset that, listen, data is not our core product. We sell insurance, we sell cars, we sell, you know, refrigerators. And, and data is not our, you know, our business. We don't really want to get into the data selling business, but um, I think it's a missed opportunity for, for many, many companies. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about organizing that data also. I mean, just having data doesn't actually mean anything. Um, you have to put that in context. You have to create hypotheses. Um, you talked about that earlier in your um, conversations. Um, and that brings us to who will do that, um, especially with the technical end. I mean, we can all strategize and, you know, gain information and you know, put that in context, you know, sit on top of that. But uh, to in order to create ETL pipelines from that, uh, developing machine learning algorithms that would actually uh, give us the accuracy on the models that we're using, classification, regression, um, trying to predict the future. That is something uh, where the real value of information comes in. And in that context, um, in your personal experiences, um, hiring data scientists and uh, importance of good data engineers to create mm -hmm. reliable pipelines. Um, I don't know if you you knew, noticed that or not, but yesterday LinkedIn was down for like um, I 10 for minutes while, yeah. and Twitter was screaming like crazy. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, when you- here in Chicago, it was down. Yes, it was everywhere. Um, yeah. So you knew when a website like that goes down, Mm -hmm. um it's not only a local issue anymore you know it's around the globe it's it's a mm -hmm. chaos um, because a lot of people are uh, doing this um as a source of living um right and there are you know high stakes decisions yeah my, my wife runs a social media business where she helps emerging technology companies kind of get going on social media and you know she had some clients who wanted some content posted and um you know she wasn't able to do so so it became you know became a, a business issue yeah, exactly. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we and we need qualified people to run that, data scientists, data mm -hmm. engineers. Um, and I don't know what, what's your opinion on um, is it as sexist um, the job as it used to be, or at least it's hyped in the media? Um, and then uh, the data scientist think? job or the or the data engineer? The data scientist. Um, yeah. And also, you know, the, the follow up question would be um, you can take it together that mm -hmm. uh, which one is valued more because there's always a tussle between these two. Yeah, I wouldn't say one is valued more than than the other, but um, yeah, the data scientist job, you know, certainly a you know an important, um, um, you know, I don't know about sexy, but <laughs> maybe I have a different opinion of what sexy is. <laughs> what word would you use? <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly a, a prominent and, and, and important role. Yeah, <clears throat> um, and, and you know, on the back end, uh, I think we tend to devalue the the importance of of integrating data. Sourcing data, in, in particular, um, if, if you know data scientist role is the sexiest role, I think one of the most important roles is the role of a data curator. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, the the ten million external data sets that are out there, but public data sets. Um, there are also thousands of data brokers. Um, any company has hundreds or dozens of partners who they can trade data, you know, with or exchange data with. Um, there are billions of social media posts, you know, each day to be harvested. There are trillions of websites to be harvested. So there's there's a wealth of data out there beyond a company's own four walls that needs to be um, considered, you know, if not actually harvested and integrated into the, the business. You know, especially today when, you know, given, given the pandemic, most companies uh, find that their forecasts are broken because their forecasts rely on their own historical sales data or whatever. Um, and they're not taking into account what's happening in the larger world. What are the leading indicators of their business? Um, 
and uh, so so many companies are, are you know working with us to evolve from um, what we call um, trend-based uh, uh, trend analytics, you know, using your own data to driver-based analytics, understanding what are the dr external drivers of your business, customer sentiment, partner inventory levels, um, other ancillary products and services that tend to lead the sale of your own products and services. Uh, those are the things that, that companies need to be considered with. And it, but it's very difficult to just flip a switch and evolve from doing trend-based to driver-based uh, analytics um, without having an active data curation function. So I think uh, one of the most important jobs today that most companies don't have is somebody whose you know, full-time role it is is to identify external data sources that might be potentially valuable, determine how to get access to them, determine how to integrate them, um, how to pay for them or license them. Um, I think it's a very important job that, that most companies don't have right now. I was talking to um, Greg Kukia a couple of weeks ago, who's mm -hmm. a product manager at Amazon, um, and we had a fantastic conversation about mm -hmm. um, the um, the value of um, understanding the bigger picture um, mm -hmm. in a business. So one of the reasons of a lot of frictions in um, these organizations mm -hmm. is um, the um, lack of bridge between the technical and the strategic side. Um, and in that context, um, I was discussing your book in our Slack channel uh, mm -hmm. with a couple of friends. And I don't know if that's something you have noticed or not, but uh, the anachronistic nature um, of the concept, basic concept of infonomics is very interesting to me because um, a lot of people think of it in context of tabular data. And I see it in a bigger picture uh, with a lot of um, sentiment analysis and how mm -hmm. it's shaping culture and in the society um, and international um, relations. Let's talk about uh, the fact that a lot of um, that information generation is happening in journalism at the moment. Uh, we just come out of a very divisive election in U.S. Um, and the historical uh, raid on um, Capitol Hill that that is very unknown to um people in uh, democratic mm -hmm. uh, traditions. And I was just wondering, uh, it could be a source, um, if you use information um, as um, a valuable asset, and there's a lot of allegation on these um, mm -hmm. big companies of tampering elections. And you know, in the previous election, we had the allegation of Russian interference. And I was just wondering, do you, is it only me, or do you also see the bigger impact of um, how brilliant the idea of infonomics is? Um, there's certainly a macro context to, to infonomics. The value of, of data at a, at a macro level, and it's something that you know I explore with my students in, in the MBA class um, that, I, that I teach at the University of Illinois. Um, but it's not something that I've been been exploring much from a commercial standpoint. Um, but but you know, there's certainly there's certainly some context there. I think um, you know it should be no surprise that we're starting to see a wealth of false data, whether it's deep fakes or just you know, fake insights or fake data, um, you know, as data becomes a, a product itself, you know, it's, it's following the same kind of trajectory that other you know, kind of commercial products followed. You know, you see the, you know, you see the fake, you know, Gucci and Prada, you know, purchase, purses and shoes and so forth. Um, I think it's no surprise that we're seeing, a, you know, a wealth of fake data as well. So I think it's um, going to be increasingly incumbent upon not just um, government organizations um, and um, and and uh, you know the electorate to determine the, the the validity of data, but also at a commercial level as well. 
you know, increasingly so. And so, you know, many companies are, are starting to form um, really um, uh, full, full featured data uh, governance um, organizations and, and data governance functions where they're starting to assess data's quality and validity and, and so forth uh, before it ever finds its way into the decision-making or operational realm. You know, picking up from your inspection of the data, I mean, that's where the problem comes in for most people, um, depending on, so it doesn't actually matter what side of uh, the table they come uh, from. Mm -hmm. So as you know, um, AI and privacy and ethics have become a field in itself. Um, and there have recently been uh, firing of key people um, from Google in their AI ethics team. Mm -hmm. Um, CNN report states that um, the 16-month congressional uh, investigation into Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook has found that the tech giants hold monopoly power in key business segments, um, and have really abused their dominance in the marketplace um, in a full-throated condemnation of the giants. Does it bother you that uh, informomics is the way uh, to reach this uh, monopolistic um, power in a way that? Um, that's kind of a lesson straight out of your book. Um, and mm. certainly you don't back that, but you know, they've used it um, to an extent uh, that would abuse yep. um, um, a lot of uh, corporate ethics. Um, well, let's talk about the fact that uh, we're recently been a Bloomberg news about an actor, I'm sorry, I'm bad with names. Um, his account was taken off half a million followers from Facebook. Um, and that these were the same allegations that were leveled uh, during the congressional mm. um, hearing. Um, so what's your take on that? Um, first, let me say, I don't refer to them as tech giants because technology is not what they sell. It's data, you know, and information is what they mm -hmm. sell. So I think it's a misnomer that is, is pretty common to refer to, um, you know, Google and Facebook as technology companies. They're, they're not technology companies, they're data companies. Apple, you know, is both a technology and a, and a data company. But, um, so let's kind of just first clarify that. Second, I think that there ought to be some concern about data monopolies, you know, the formation of data monopolies um, or oligopolies, and um, that the, the government, you know, probably should step in and, and you know, ensure that that doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, unfortunately, I think the government is pretty, you know, most politicians pretty naive about, you know, infonomics kinds of concepts. Um, so they would have to get a bit smarter before they, tried to enact any any sort of you know legislation um, as far as people getting kicked off of, of Twitter um, that's all about terms of service terms of service are pretty clear if somebody violates the terms of service then you know Twitter Facebook whoever has every right to, to kick them off so um, that that's a simple answer there it's not not about people being canceled or being censored it's about you know adhering to the terms of service for the free service that you're using so mm -hmm. that's my, my take on that. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, let's not talk about you um, as Doug um, has worked with uh, our top uh, brands and clients and big companies and helped mm -hmm. them uh, rake in millions of um, dollars. Talk about uh, Doug when you um, plug out of the work, um, when you get back <laughs> home. Um, I'm just wondering, um, what are your odds? Um, I mean, what game are you most likely uh, to win if you play with me? Is it tennis or is it golf? Um, 
Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know how good you are at either, but um, and that's the catch, actually. <laughs> I did play competitive tennis up until a few years ago. Um, my shoulder is just not enjoying it as much as it, as it once did. Um, my doctor told me to stop serving 100 miles an hour, um, um, and and I said, uh, you know, that's the best part of my game. So the rest oh, really? of my game isn't as good. Um, golf is is all right i'm about a 14 maybe 15 handicap so i, I just you know it's just for fun but this summer i'm going to get into what's called pickleball you heard of pickleball what's that so pickleball is kind of a kind of a cross between um i guess uh table tennis and um and tennis um and it's played with a a, a paddle and a kind of a wiffle ball a plastic wiffle ball on mm -hmm. uh, played on like half of a tennis court and uh, the great thing about it is uh, there's a little bit less movement, maybe some quicker movements than in, in tennis, but uh, there's no serving overhand. You serve underhand. <laughs> so okay. I'm hoping to get into to that this summer. Um, I'm also can be found um, weather permitting, you know, biking along the Chicago lakefront. So I try to get in about about 100 miles a week um, biking uh, when I do that. And I'm also, uh, speaking of data, I'm a bit of an orange theory junkie. I'm not sure if you're familiar with orange theory. It's a, no, a I'd like to know training. about that. Yeah. It's a circuit training, um, company that has, uh, your facilities around the world and, uh, you wear a, a wristband and it tracks your heart rate and they have you up on a board and you can kind of, you can kind of compete a little bit with the other people in the, uh, in the session. So, um, I'm looking forward to getting back into, into that once the, uh, once I get a uh, get the vaccine, and um, I don't know, that's what, that's what kind of keeps me busy. Also, uh, I enjoy cooking, and I've been baking a lot this uh, this winter. Um, I, I bake more than I can eat, or than I should eat, so I'm I'm always giving it out to our neighbors or family. Um, what's the best that you can cook? The best that I can cook, um, I'm pr probably pretty good with some Asian foods and uh, and uh, Latin American. Probably Latin American's my my best. Uh, best types of meals. I was in uh, Peru last year. I spoke at the uh, the first annual Latin American Chief Data Officer Summit and uh, spent some time in, in Peru and really got to appreciate the, the food there and immediately came home and had to cook a, a complete uh, like you know, eight course Peruvian meal for my family. Okay, well, that requires a marathon afterwards to digest that, no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you ever tried marathon, by the way? And a lot of people, you know, in corporate echelons, you know, that's kind of be a favorite sport. You know, I'm, I'm flat-footed, so running is uh -huh. not really my thing. <laughs> Don't you have, like, shoes now that actually support they, your... They do. And, you know, I, I run when I'm at Orange Theory. I'll run you know, three or four miles or whatever, but uh, it's not, not one of my favorite things to do. I, I much prefer to be on the on the bike. <laughs> okay. Um Getting back to uh, Gartner for a little bit, um, I'm an absolute fan of um, the work that they do there. Um, it's been for years, and I read every report um, that mm -hmm. they come out with. And recently, there's been a new one, um, a fantastic um, trends report um, by Daryl Plummer, uh, the chief of mm -hmm. research at Gartner at the moment. And mm -hmm. he talks about a lot of technologies that are not uh, market ready at the moment, but hold a lot of promise. Um, yeah. We're talking about DNS storage, quantum computing, carbon nanotubes, um, <laughs> and it's strategic um, technology prediction report. Um, yeah. And one of the interesting part of that is, um, we talked about how the Moore's law is now hitting the wall. So that isn't really true um, anymore, or at least um, it has lost its rigor. Um, which brings us to the question that if we don't have enough compute um, and storage um, power for um, the enormous data mm -hmm. gathering potential technologies, uh, 
it seems like a standoff to me. I mean, what are we going to do with all this data and not enough power to um, yeah. can build it? I mean, as it, as it is, you know, um, we as we're working in research companies uh, in machine learning algorithms, we're finding a new ways to find better, right. powerful GPUs and um, mm -hmm. smarter ML algorithms. Uh, with existing data, we are kind of out of options. What are we going to do with the new ones? Uh, I, I think, you know, perhaps I haven't really looked into it, but Moore's law, you know, might be hitting the wall when it comes to kind of silicone and, you know, typical electron based uh, systems. But um, I think we, we will certainly see a um, a, a, a quantum <laughs> shift as we move into quantum computing and um, and then we'll kind of start all over again. So, um, you know, I, I'm not not too concerned about not too concerned about hitting a wall. So. I think companies need to be a little bit more efficient, thinking about being efficient at um, uh, processing and, and storing data. And some of the work that I've been doing in Infonomics has helped companies um, rationalize their data environments. Um, you know, they're, they're keeping and storing data online that has a low economic value compared to its cost. You know, there's some companies who we've worked with who have determined that the, the value of the data that they're, they're storing is less than the... Um, uh, economic value that it's uh, is the value that they're generating is less than its cost and so they've been able to make a defensible dis deletion or a defensible archival kind of decision to reduce their infrastructure cost by millions of dollars a year um, i think i just heard that uh, amazon's um, server firms now consume more electricity than i forget which latin american country it was maybe it was chile um, so you know that that's certainly a concern right and and, and one of the things i'm really not quite keen on is is the amount of energy that we're spending mining for Bitcoin. I think that's ridiculous. There's got to be a better way. Um, and, so that's and a good question. How not, much not good, for the, not good for the ecology. Um, that's an interesting one because we had a lot of conversation with um, Doug about um, how much of his asset he's going to put in Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know where you stand on that, but now we have Elon Musk's support of um, Dogecoin and um, other cryptocurrencies. Uh, some people think it's totally ballooning. Um, what about you? Uh, I'm not. I, I have no opinion on it really either way. And you so, don't own any either. I don't know that it's baloney. I just, you know, the U.S. went off the gold standard, you know, 40 years ago or so, and um, so it's all based on the, you know, the faith and credit that you place in, um, you know, whoever is managing that currency. So, I'll just and leave for it now, there. it's no one. I'll leave it there, yeah. Or or not no one, but we don't know who it is, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unless you're Satoshi. <laughs> right, perhaps. Um, so um, yeah, I don't really have much of an opinion on that. But going back to Gartner, um, you know, Gartner publishes that technology trends report each year. So you, you can go back a few years and see some really interesting things about blockchain and, um, and uh, um, uh, uh, digital twins, I think is gonna be really, really interesting, um, creating digital twins of the, of the business. Um, I think that the, creating a digital twin of the business is going to lead to the, what I call the self-driving enterprise, where an organization can actually run on its own without, with minimal or not, you know, nominal human intervention. We already see this to some degree with trading firms, but I think um, the, the day is coming where any kind of company can pretty much operate um, autonomously. I think that's a very interesting uh, point that you raised there with digital twins, uh, because mm -hmm. a lot of uh, got corporate governance and security issues would arise if you were to use the 
algorithmic um, architecture of Bitcoin um, and mm. transferred that to the um, regular ones like normal businesses. Um, it would help certainly. Um, a lot of countries um, who are not um, on the grid, uh, for example, in Pakistan, we don't have PayPal, and I have no mm. idea why they are not. You know, it seems to be like a couple of mm. countries that um, they still um, aren't willing to come to. But um, I was just wondering for other companies, uh, the big companies, what would their um, apprehensions be in order to use algorithms like Bitcoin? Because that would be certainly very hard to um, monitor that. Yeah, one is kind of the auditability of, of Bitcoin is mm. the suspect if you're trying to follow a transaction. The the second is the, the performance. So if you're trying to handle high volume transactions using blockchain, you know it, the technology is not there yet. Mm, that's a very good one, actually. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, organizations um, handling and storage of data, on-prem versus cloud. Okay. Where do you go? <laughs> I think it's inevitable that mo most everything is moving to the cloud. There's no reasonable reason why any organization today should have um, the, the bulk of its data on-prem and and have a a uh, have a, a capital expenditure that's depreciating the day they install it. Right? It's outdated the day, the day they install it. So, um, you know, getting back to the point that most companies should focus on their core business. Um, you know, IT shouldn't be the core business of most companies. And uh, so I, I certainly see every rational reason for it to be uh, outsourced. Um, you know, you have the ability to handle dynamic workloads, um, to not have to deal with upgrades. Um, so there's, I think the, the, the reasons are certainly more and more compelling every day. But don't you um, see a confounding variable here, um, which is nature of data itself. For example, mm -hmm. you don't want government to put all your data on AWS. Do you? I, I might trust AWS to manage the government's data better than I would trust the government to manage it. Okay. Um, so that's another point. You know, how, how good are you as a company at secure at security and privacy and governance and all of that compared to a company that does that for a living? Probably most companies are not up to the level of security and privacy controls that. Um, you know that AWS or or, or you know Google or others have. You probably have worked with them at some point. I'm just curious, why would you trust AWS more than government? <laughs> I, I'm not really saying it's either or. There are probably some government functions that are more buttoned up. You know, maybe the CIA, FBI, NSA. You know, are, are a little bit more uh, have even greater controls than than other than than cloud providers. I, I don't know. I don't concern myself much with. Um, with with um, the the physical aspects of, of data storage. Okay, um, one of the things that you've talked very passionately about, um, and I think that was part of uh, one of your talks um, at CIO, uh, which is um, what happens to data democratization, um, like open source models, donation based models, yeah. uh, freemium pricing. If everyone came from a um, well, if I may, a scarcity a mindset um, that infonomics kind of um, seems to advocate. Uh, in your defense, maybe you do see uh, commercial infonomics separate from the non-commercial endeavors. For yeah. example, if we didn't have this openness of data, uh, intellectual exchange, ability to connect with each other across the world, I mean, this conversation wouldn't be happening. Um, so if we took infonomics uh, at its face value, do you think it's a problem or it's a part of, uh, or it's a solution to the problem? Um, part of infonomics deals with understanding the 
application of, of traditional economic principles like supply and demand and pricing and elasticity and productivity frontiers and marginal utility and so forth, um, even uh, monopolies and oligop data oligopolies. And so um, the, the problem is that those economic concepts were designed with traditional goods and services in mind, physical goods and services and, and labor in mind, and were never designed with any consideration for you know, data as a, as a distinct kind of asset or resource. Um, you know, in, in Econ 101, we always talk about, you know, guns and butter, right? So what we've done, some colleagues at Gartner and I have, have done was look at <clears throat> these core economic principles and how they need to be perhaps tweaked or, or adapted for data assets. And um, there's some really interesting things that, you know, for, for producers and consumers of data to consider um, in terms of like, uh, you know, data pricing and elasticity and, and supply and demand. Um, and so there, there's some really prescriptive advice in, in my book about um, considering these models in the context of whether you're a producer or a consumer of, of data and how that could affect the, the architecture. Do you suggest different models for consumers and producers? Um, so certain models have more impact for producers or consumers. Yeah. But yeah. So like what, marginal, would that be different? More, marginal utility has more, you know, of an impact on, on probably a, a consumer. Um, the, uh, things like pricing and elasticity have more of a kind of effect on probably the producer. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've heard about, um, but they're two sides of the same coin. I guess. Um, Eric Weinstein originally challenged um, the whole economic theory mm -hmm. uh, with his um, gauge theory. It's a little complicated, but what he says that, um, and I kind of agree with that when you study these courses in mm -hmm. macroeconomics micro and MBA about um, the, the indices with which we um, measure society, like GDP, inflation, and other things. They're very tricky, um, and they haven't been serving us well. So I was just wondering if you have a take on that. Yeah, I, I may have put this quote in the book. I can't remember whether it ended up in there. It was a quote by uh, by President Kennedy's brother, Bobby Kennedy, who said something around uh, along the lines of the, the things that uh, we measure um, for the economy are are not necessarily the right things. That they're 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 things that we should me be measuring that we're not. And it uh, you know it also reminds me of uh, the country of Bhutan, um, which has a, a chief which which has a gross happiness index. I think every country should have a gross happiness index. That's a very good thing, actually. I mean, and yep. you probably know um, the there there is a um, Gini index, which um, um, kind of uh, ranks uh, people um, on the happiness curves. Also, uh, so Scandinavian yep. countries are kind of highest on that. You know, I've had guests um, previously in my show um, talk about, a lot about psychology of how it's mm -hmm. constructed. And one of my own research in psychometrics um, is very um, helpful in evaluating those claims. Uh, for example, um, there's a lot of um, you know, suicide and mental disorders um, in the countries which are highest on the happiness uh, index. And I was just wondering, how do they even construct that? Uh, a parallel between um, the GDP, how it's constructed, and infonomics is very interesting to me. Um, for example, uh, GDP does not um, actually capture all the um, information and indices, uh, which are in some way not even quantifiable right. to make an index called GDP. And I think uh, infonomics kind of is a same, falls into the same um, 
paradox or dilemma. Um, do you have a suggestion for GDP also as well as for economics, infonomics? Yeah, let me give you an example of where the GDP fails to capture the value of, of data. You go into the uh, grocery store, right? And uh, where's my card here? You go to the grocery store and you scan your, your loyalty card, right? And so what happens is you get a discount on your, on your groceries. But what's really happening, we know what's really happening. Most people know what's really happening, which is it's actually a barter transaction. You're exchanging information about you and your purchase for free food. Mm -hmm. So who's cut out of that transaction? The tax man, right? Mm -hmm. That's not taxable. The discount is not taxable. So the reason they call it a discount is, you know, obviously to avoid tax taxation. But even in even when you're bartering with information, if I'm a company and I'm um, like a company like like um, where I'm exchanging information about my sales or my inventory um, or my forecasts with my suppliers so that they know how much to supply me. And in return, I get a discount on their goods and services or I get favorable you know, delivery terms. Um, that has some commercial value, but it's not any kind of commercial value that's captured by the GDP. Such a clever answer. Actually, when I was reading your book, I did find this. Um, this is such an astute point, uh, which uh, I don't Thank know you. if people have um, noticed that or not. Because, you know, when you have when you sell your information and you have hard mm -hmm. cash, that's tax deductible. Um, and that's taking right. out from the value um, that you're providing to other people. But if it's a barter exchange of something else that mm -hmm. can indirectly or directly generate um, cash value or brand value, yeah. uh, that would be a, such a fantastic idea. Right. And I'm just wondering black market, but it's kind of a, there's there's a there's this legitimate gray market for data among trading partners. I mean, if you put it that way, all big four are uh, involved in uh, black market because you know they're telling you ways to cut um, taxes, which is uh, a legal way. So it's it's right. not that it's illegal. So I was just wondering who inspires you. Um, I mean, for, to a lot of people, you inspire and um, thank you. Um, give them um, information that is really valuable for their business and uh, personal growth. Who inspires you? Um. <laughs> Wow, there, there's a, like, a lot of people in the industry who are inspiring me in, in, in different ways. Um, kind of kind of tough to mention. Mention um, uh, the gentleman Bill Schmarzo uh, and I have been oh, good friend of mine. collaborating for years on this concept of of data economics. Um, John Ladley, um, many other people, and kind of you know going back in, in time, there have been some you know economists that uh, that have been inspired by. So um, yeah, who's your favorite economist? Um, I'm trying to remember his name. The, the uh, he worked with uh, Marvin Minsky at University of Chicago. I'm just blanking on his name right now. Uh, Gary Becker, Dr. Gary Becker. Okay. And um, back in the 1960s, um, he realized that um, labor workforce or whatever you know we used to call it back then um, was a legitimate you know economic asset and could be treated. Um, and managed like an actual economic asset. And he's the one who came up with the idea for um, human capital, actually wrote a book called Human Capital. And you know, now we use that term human capital, now, even though we can't put the value of our company's humans on the balance sheet. Why we can't do that? Because uh, we don't own and control them. That's one of the qualities of an asset. 
an asset has to be something that you own and control. And in countries that have outlawed slavery, <laughs> you cannot own and control people anymore. So you can't claim them as a balance sheet asset. But Gary Becker said, listen, that, that notwithstanding, we can and could be managing our workforces with the same kind of discipline as we manage our other kinds of you know, more traditional um, physical and financial assets. And so I was really inspired by his work on that um, in, in coming up kind of with the Infonomics idea on, on treating information as an actual asset. When do you think um, the first roots um, of Infonomics um, took place in you? Um, and how long did it actually take to fully grow into a tree? <laughs> well, I think uh, it really, it really kind of hit home um, after the, the 9-11 terrorist attacks when, when companies were, when I realized that companies couldn't claim the value of their, their data um, on their, their insurance policies. Um, and then what the insurance industry did to, to deny those claims and then, you know, change the, the policy. Um, so that really hit it for me. I think, you know, even before that in building data warehouses back in the, um, you know, mid nineties or so, um, it, it occurred to me that data had this, you know, potential economic value. Um, and, uh, I was just kind of more involved in, you know, helping to build those data warehouses and, and the process around that than really the, the economic value. But, um, you know, one of the things that we did for clients in building their data warehouses was we would analyze and profile the source data to identify the best sources and how they could best be integrated. And so that kind of assessment of the underlying source data um, is probably where the kind of the early inklings of understanding data's, um, you know, real economic or financial value uh, stems from. Well, as someone who has actually um, studied very deeply um, both economics and information theory, um, mm -hmm. I still think there are missing puzzles. So what other subjects you actually took um, uh, the lessons of from? Because that's a lot more than these these two. Yeah, there, there are other lessons in, in not just understanding data's value, but in managing data's value that can be learned from other kinds of asset management principles and practices. There are standards, even ISO standards, for how to manage um, physical assets, supply chain, IT assets, uh, human capital, library science, records management, financial asset management. There are all these asset management principles and practices that we as data professionals have really done a, a pretty poor job <laughs> of, of uh, paying homage to and, and leveraging. And so part of the book, um, I suggest ways to leverage concepts from different asset management concepts in, in how organizations should manage their, their data assets. Mm. Um, I think one of the favorite concepts from asset management, and it mm. kind of, when I read the book, um, it immediately drew my attention to the book um, and the philosophy of investment by um, Buffett. And uh, a lot of uh, it is um, actually uh, very similar to how we manage information because in order to succeed um, in investment and gaining uh, consistent returns, you have to be up to date on the information and what's the bigger picture and how it's developing. And I'm just wondering in your professional life, if, if you work with any of those um, um, investment of funds, uh, venture capitalists, um, or anything that has to do with financial sector and gave them a holistic picture of uh, what's happening and what's going to happen? No, not much of a holistic picture. We're just uh, kind of more looking at company by company. Um, holistically, we'll look at the portfolio of companies with uh, within the a private equity firm's portfolio, but um, not, not really 
not not at any particular macro level no can you think of any application uh, for the industry um well there there is and i don't want to say too much right now but there's a an investment firm that we, you know, we started working with that is positioned to help organizations capitalize upon their latent uh, data assets um, much the same way that a real estate prospector or an oil prospector would work identifying an oil field or identifying a an empty lot that's owned by somebody and saying, listen, we'd like to lease that from you, extract value from it, and I'll kind of take a cut of that that action. So it's a um, it's a business that we're we're starting to get involved with a, 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 a an investment firm. You don't seem to be a big fan of economists' idea of data is a new oil. <laughs> no, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, data has these unique. Uh, economic properties that are very different than than oil. Yes, you know, you extract oil, you plumb oil, you refine oil, oil fuels processes. Yeah, so those, those, those there's some similarities there, but that's kind of where they end. The real interesting comparisons between data and oil are where they differ. Uh, and that is that when you consume a drop of oil, you can only consume it one way at a time. When you consume a drop of oil, it, it dissipates. It turns into energy and uh, and pollutants, right? And um, and uh, and when you consume a drop of oil, it doesn't create more oil, right? Does it's not regenerative in that in that way. Data is very different. When you consume data, it doesn't go away. You consume it multiple ways simultaneously for multiple processes. Um, and that when you consume data, you're typically whenever you're using data, you're typically in a position to capture more data about you know the results of using that data. And so in that way, it's it's somewhat uh, regenerative. So um, I think companies that understand <clears throat> those differences and have capitalized on them are the ones that are really thriving today in the, in the data economy. And in fact, some research that I did um, bears that out. We find that companies that demonstrate certain kinds of behaviors, like if they have a chief data officer or a data science organization or a data governance organization, that these kinds of companies have a market to book value ratio that's nearly two times higher than the market average. So there's mm -hmm. something that investors favor about companies that exhibit data-centric, data-savvy kinds of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And the companies that are, um, that are information product companies that make most of their revenue by selling or licensing data, um, those kinds of companies have a market to book value ratio that's nearly three times higher than the market average. So, um, I don't think there's any more compelling reason to become a data savvy, data centric, or data product kind of company than than that. And I find this fascinating. Um, the same conversation mm -hmm. when you had it um, at um, MIT Chief Data Officer mm -hmm. Information Quality Symposium um, last year with Dave Vellante, and you talked about American Airlines, United Airlines, um, right. how their actual valuation, third party valuations, are way higher than their market cap. Uh, but I guess uh, this engenders two questions. One would again, uh, going back to how do you actually, you know, generate this valuation, and um, surprisingly that. Um, don't you think it's on some level, um, it's a wrong incentive for manipulative organizations? I mean, forget about the market cap, you know, just focus on data, just mash it up, conjure something, you know, keep everyone entertained. I mean, we already know what happened at Enron. Um, and then if you just blow it out of proportion and look at the global picture, uh, mm -hmm. We already have uh, corporations like Monsanto um, tried to uh, trademark the Basmati rice, which is the Indian 
product um, and a lot of uh, other things. I mean, we're not saying that it always happens, but it there is a possibility for it to happen. Um, and you know, if you're incentivizing them on data and not on their um, actual asset-based valuation, uh, you're giving them the wrong bone. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think, again, I think data is an asset. It should be something that should be valued alongside of financial and, and physical assets um, and other kinds of um, intangibles like copyrights and patents and trademarks are, are valued. So wh why wouldn't data be valued on, on a balance sheet? It's something certainly that you own and control. It's exchangeable for cash and it generates what accountants call probable future economic benefits. That's the definition of what constitutes an asset. And there's no reason no legitimate reason, I don't think, why data shouldn't be considered an asset. And and even, um, you know, board members from the Financial Asset Standards Board, uh, uh, FASB, agree with me. I see your point totally. Um, but, yeah. you know, that's my job to play devil's advocate, so I'm going to do right. that, uh, which is that um, it, there's a lot of discussion about um, in open source communities that we have got MIT um, mm -hmm. license, um, Creative Commons is a huge Right. Um, claim to that, you know, I was part of uh, one of the mm -hmm. founders of Wikipedia here in Pakistan, believed mm -hmm. a lot um, in uh, copy creative commons, uh, creating open educational resources. I've been sitting on the board of Wiki Educator, which is the largest mm -hmm. wiki for educators after Wikipedia. Um, so I have some very strong opinions on that. Um, and then, you know, I really value um, your opinion on that. So this gives me actually an opportunity to exchange ideas and where we come mm -hmm. from. And when we talk about open source community, Look at, I mean, some people would call it hypocrisy. Um, we talk about OpenAI's GPT-3. Um, it's such a wonderful product. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it was built by the collective efforts of uh, developers yeah. and engineers and um, mm -hmm. a lot of um, other people throughout the globe and uh, took, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And mm -hmm. now when the time comes for people to actually use that information in their own products, they just shut it down in the name of security. Well, that's not very secure for people who are using it for manipulative purposes. And I was just mm -hmm. wondering if, if that's the um, lesson that um, inadvertently you're giving out to people who contribute, um, what does future hold? Um, well, uh, you know, w one of the economic ways to look at data's value is not just uh, in, in intrinsically to an organization, but um, what kind of good it's providing. So uh, I see more and more companies embarking on data for good kinds of initiatives where they're making their data available to help society um, in, in one way or another. And obviously I'm a big fan of that. And that is that value is difficult to measure, right? Um, not that it can't be measured, but it's difficult to measure. And uh, it's something I'm, I'm certainly you know, an advocate of. And, and um, I think any company that's sitting on data that has potential societal benefits um, and they're not making that available um, is not being, not being a responsible corporate citizen. Oh, that's good coming from you. Um, that you at least do support uh, the idea that you know things that are for public good should be available to, and to public. I wanted to also get your opinion, being a thought leader on um, topics and uh, big data, um, privacy, mm -hmm. and ethics. Uh, what do you think about this uh, uh, recent um, catfight between Apple and uh, Facebook? Um, the the one I've been kind of paying attention to is the one with with Facebook in in uh, Australia. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that that's been really interesting. So, I, I, don't, I don't. What's the one with Apple and Facebook? Uh, that was over um, this privacy issue, also because uh, recently um, 
was it like a couple of weeks ago, uh, WhatsApp uh, rolled out a privacy policy in which everyone had to actually accept that um, right. that they would sell the data. And, you know, there was a huge mm -hmm. uh, backlash right. against that. People just converted to Telegram or Signal. Um, yeah. Their subscription rose in millions overnight, um, and then they had to actually eventually roll it back. Yeah. And uh, Apple got furious um, because they generally are, well, let's say not as performing not as bad on uh, data uh, selling as um, everyone else. And I'm just wondering, do, do you have uh, a favorite there? Listen, I, I, I think that any kind, of, any kind of application that you that we as a consumer are getting for free, we should understand that you know, people have said, okay, if you're, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. I'm not actually the product, I'm the producer of the product, which is the information. And so if you're getting any kind of application for free, you ought to expect that that app provider is monetizing your content in some way. And that's a fair trade. Again, that's a barter mm -hmm. transaction, right? Again, something not captured by the GDP. Um, and so uh, I, I think that's perfectly fair and, and understandable. It's just that uh, companies need to be transparent about it. And um, that's what WhatsApp was, was, was doing. Um, so uh, yeah, you know, the terms and conditions for the, 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 for usage of these applications, perhaps could be a bit more transparent. Um, okay. I would certainly agree with that. I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, I guess there is um, a tacit contract that if you're using a service for free, um, you know, it comes with um, strength. So all, it's right. not like free than free beer. Um, so, you know, you can probably um, right. e either use it or leave it. Uh, but again, you know, let's talk about, I mean, you already talked about uh, the issue with Australia. And mm -hmm. now that's a whole new level. You know, you're you're picking a fight with a whole country, um, and I'm just wondering how do you analyze yeah. the situation there? Um, I, I haven't I haven't you know, read deeply on it yet, but <clears throat> I understand that um, the media companies are concerned that they are losing eyeballs because Facebook is aggregating the the news, right? <clears throat> and um, so Facebook, I guess, in the in recent days, has said, okay, we're not we're going to shut down the news feeds, right, from the the, the news outlets. And, and see what happens. And we all know what happens, which is it decreases people clicking through to the news feeds and subscribing. And that's no surprise to me at, at all. And, and I think it was pretty naive of the media outlets and the, and the governments to, to complain about Facebook not aggregating, but summarizing the news and providing links to, to news, which I don't have any problem with. I think it, it could only help the, the news industry. Despite the um, face value of uh, who was right or wrong, don't you think that you know that can trigger a lot um, unpleasant response, uh, a bigger unpleasant response uh, across countries in, in terms of international mm -hmm. relations? And it's not as small um, as it seems. Or do you think it's just a normal, you know, business practice? Um, I, I don't know. That's going to affect international relations too much. I mean, maybe it has with some of the stuff between China. And, and the U.S., but um, that was probably just something that the the previous administration was trying to make hay out of, um, illegitimately. So, um, so I, I think um, you know it's interesting. You, you, there are some people who see these multinational you know, technology and and information companies as being um, you know global uh, you know entities themselves, like countries in and of themselves. And there's an interesting philosophy, you know, around that, that, um, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and WhatsApp and Alibaba and others are, are effectively kind of countries of their own. I don't know if you're uh, starting to go back uh, because I, 
I find it really hard to believe that, you know, um, apart from your um, Gartner um, aura, you don't have opinions on general things of public good and international relations and things like this. Uh, do you really think, you know, the, I mean, like you would very generally put that, you know, these companies are not tech companies, these are big data companies. Right. And at some point, uh, you know, people fight over data also, um, especially when it becomes, um, you know, so connected with everyone's life. Uh, we have this huge um, issue between um, China and U.S. for the past four years continuously in one form or another about COVID-19 allegations and then the trade bans yeah. um, and tariffs. Absolutely unnecessary, at least in my opinion. I was just wondering, as someone who has uh, traveled all over the globe, um, understand this uh, to the granular level, you must have opinions on that. Um, and how did it actually play out? Was it beneficial for the businesses or not? Was it necessary or not? Um, apart from your yeah. political beliefs, you do have some opinions, I guess. Yeah, I don't think it was necessary. Um, I think it was political posturing for the, the most part. And um, um, I, I think, um, you know, any kind of lack of transparency by any of these you know, data or, or technology companies is easily exposed um, and affects their reputation and, and sales without any kind of real government inter intervention that's, that's necessary, so. Yeah, I think, you know, fairly um, too much government intervention can be a problem for both businesses um, yeah. and economics. Well, let's um, take a segue to another um, thing that you have uh, done very ardently, which is um, teaching, uh, both at um, you know, which university that you mm -hmm. teach on and your um, immensely famous courses on um, Coursera about um, infonomics. And I was just wondering, you come from a, a very research-oriented uh, background with Gartner and Deloitte, you know, getting out there, you know, KPIs, achieving things, getting things to work. How does it actually um, feel to talk to students, you know, get into the um, theory of it and uh, less of the uh, ROI perspective? Yeah, somebody recently on LinkedIn uh, accused me of uh, promoting my Coursera class as being uh, something to, to generate passive income. Um, and they should know that I actually don't get paid for that Coursera course. Yeah. It's a... Uh, and what a, if you do? It's an adaptation of the course, the MBA course that I teach. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that the University of Illinois has put on Coursera and that I've done just out of... Um, you know, to kind of give back to my, my alma mater. So I'm just curious, uh, why would that be a bad thing, even if you did? I don't know. It wouldn't be a bad thing. Just somebody was trying to trying to poke fun at me, I guess. I, I don't know. But the, anyway, the reason that, that I love teaching the class is um, not for any kind of, you know, supplemental income, but I, I love, um, you know, the, the bright minds that are taking this class, that are exploring new ideas about data's economic um, uh, you know, features and, and the way it affects the economy. And we're always exploring new ideas. There's been some really great papers that my students have written that I'd, I'd love to get published somehow if I could find the time and, and to, to do that. But um, I, my, my goal, <laughs> here's my, my goal, is to have one of my students go on and uh, and some of them are, have actually applied to, to PhD programs um, to, to study you know, data, uh, you know, information economics or infonomics. And my, my, uh, my, my wish is that one of them one day wins a Nobel Prize. Okay, you don't reach it for yourself though. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. Not that smart. 
Uh, apart from that, I was just wondering, what did you learn from the experience, like teaching? Because they're a very different field. You know, I'm a university professor also yeah. teaching classes. Um, and that's a total different ball game um, in comparison with um, the industry when you get to the bare knuckles. It is. I think when, you know, I do a lot of speaking and the speaking is usually, you know, up on a stage and you're expressing ideas and kind of being an, I don't know, an infotainer sometimes, right? But um, I think working with this, the students, it's more engaging and more interactive and, and you know, I, I really enjoy that. So um, sometimes I'm told I challenge their ideas a little bit too much, you know, like, <laughs> all right, great idea, but you really haven't thought it through very well. So I need to kind of pull back on that a, a little bit the next time I, I teach the class. <laughs> yes, there are some very interesting opinions on how organizations are structured. One of the arguments um, that I saw um, you advocating very passionately is about the distinction between CIOs and CTOs and CDOs and the job roles. Uh, do you want to open this Pandora box again? <laughs> Here, here's my my prediction, um, and I tried to um, I tried to get this prediction into some research at Gartner, but there was some resistance. Um, for obvious reasons, because Gartner typically, Gartner's um, typical um, buyer is the is the chief information officer. So my prediction is that um, that IT as a discipline as an organization is going to bifurcate into separate I and T organizations. Now, where does that leave the CIO? Eh, maybe kind of left out. Um, what we need is somebody who's managing the data and someone who's managing the technology. And in my mind, that's the chief data officer and the chief technology officer. So unless a, a CIO can kind of adapt to becoming one of those players, <laughs> um, then there's really, I think the future doesn't hold a lot of role for a, a, a chief information officer. Now it's a bit of a wild prediction and I, I'm perfectly happy to be wrong, but I've already seen some several companies and even government organizations who have separated their IT functions into separate I and T functions. And uh, one pharmaceutical company, in fact, and I, I think there's another couple companies that, that have come across who have said, yeah, we don't need a CIO anymore. We just need a chief data officer and a chief technology officer. And so they've kind of dismissed that that position. Um, and I, I'm sure, you know, um, I hope that I'm not misquoting Dave Vellante and you know, during your conversation, he talked about the fact that um, keeping a CIO is just like, you know, having a fox watching out for the hens. And I was just wondering if you like the analogy there. Um, I don't I don't know about that, but, you know, most CIOs tend to behave as if their middle name is infrastructure. The I stands for infrastructure rather than information. And, and that's fine. Um, but um, I, I think that information has become secondary to, to technology. Um, and, and it, that's not where it belongs at all. You know, technology comes and goes. Um, information assets are reusable, and, um, and and really, what what fuels the business, not the not the technology per se. Another thing that I really admire about you is your reading. Uh, you're a very well-read man, um, and I must say, um, at the expense of those um, others, um, you know. Supposedly, market researcher, thought leaders, um, yeah. and pretty much empty when you read their work. Um, you talk about one in your one of your articles. Uh, was it on governance info uh, about um, Kushim, who's the first uh, known man uh, from the book um, *Sapiens*? Oh, right, Joel Nerd. Right, right. I read. I do a lot of my research, so <laughs> you know, I do read stuff. So, 
Um, and you you have a very interesting premise, uh, which is kind of baffling, yep. uh, but nonetheless, um, you have the right to have that, which is that you know kings, prophets, and deities. You know the, the, these are the things that come and go, uh, even deities, uh, which is surprising. Mm, right. um, and you seem to value the work of accountant above all, because you know what in Kushim this. Um, in a believed first person right. on earth uh, was known was for accounting, which yeah, we know, right? Yeah, and I was just wondering, uh, don't you think accountants come and go as well? Uh, I'm sure they do. Accounting practices haven't changed much, you know, at, at the course for about 500 years, you know, since um, Luca Pacioli, you know, architected the uh, or formalized the double entry accounting system, and and we're Kind of been, <laughs> there's not been a lot of innovation. I do a talk on on accounting innovation, and it's kind of funny. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to you know disparage anyone. I just thought it was interesting that the first person whose name that we know in history was an accountant. And so uh, that was an interesting, interesting fact. Yeah, but, but, but do you really think that in the longer um, run, in the grand scheme of things, um, they outperform kings and deities and prophets? Well, I mean, they're known as the what I think they were known as the eyes and the ears of the king, right? Uh, I think mm -hmm. I wrote in the book, um, and um, so I, you know, today they're the eyes and ears of the of the business, and their eyes have not been open to the value of data, and uh, or been closed to the value of data, and I think that's that's a mistake. I think the accounting profession um, could do the world, uh, and companies, and investors, and its own profession a really good favor if they open their eyes to the value of data. There's such a beautiful parallel between um, what the basic premise of the book is, mm -hmm. um, sapiens, which is that human beings um, are the only species that create um, stories, believe in them, and actually sell them. And I think the, the parallel between the sapiens and infonomics is an interesting one. Um, do, do you also see this parallel or? I have sapiens on my reading list, but I haven't read it yet. Um, so, so you took the bits and pieces then uh, for the um, article, I guess. For the article, I actually found that that um, that piece somewhere else. I found that that story about Kushim somewhere else, not in Sapiens. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I must have misread that. Yep. Um, you are also a top ten uh, data science influencer um, on Kitty Nuggets. You're I mean, top twenty big data influencers. Only oh, like a top five big influencer. A lot of tops there, um, and I just wondering. Um, I mean, we've talked a fair bit about that. Um, you, as a consumer on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and WhatsApp um, and what have you, uh, how do you see your own pattern of information um, consumption and activity on these platforms change, um, especially after the NSA breach and Snowden's whistleblowing? Because that's kind of a landmark on how people view things yeah, and I, use the VPN. I don't think that affected me at all. I mean, I love learning from what other people write on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and, and elsewhere, but, um, and I also love engaging in, in debates. There's some really fun debates that we've had on LinkedIn around, you know, uh, data versus information, right? And um, uh, how to value data. There've been some really, or what, it, what it, I'm doing, I'm kind of involved in a debate right now around, you know, what is innovation? Right? Does innovation actually have to be something that's consumable? And I argue that it isn't, that there are plenty of innovations that have never seen the light of day, never seen commercial success. Uh, to deny them innovation status 
um, even though perhaps they've even received patents, I think is is disingenuous. Uh, yes, the goal of any innovation perhaps ought to be something that is provides uh, some kind of you know, commercial value or societal good, but um, that's not the definition of of innovation. So I've been having you know we have some fun kind of uh, debating um, on on LinkedIn, and, and I think that's as mind expanding for me as actually reading a book. Most many books I tend to just kind of skim through and just go, wow, this this is two hundred pages, and there were maybe four interesting points you know made in the book. And um, sometimes I wonder whether a lot of books are just written by ghostwriters. I, I, I don't know. So, <laughs> what do you think of uh, originals? Um, Adam Grant, you know, one of my favorite authors. You know, he's kind of the guy who, when he writes books, um, you can be pretty sure that you know most of those pages would have information. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't can't, can't speak to his books. So, what is your favorite? My favorite book. Um, favorite book I read this year was the uh, Born to Run. Okay, um... uh, by Christopher McDougall. It's a story about ultra marathoners and what they go through, and um, and then the discovery of this tribe in Mexico, um, hidden tribe that uh, they they run as part of their culture, and um, it was a, just a fascinating book. Uh, the, the intersection of running and anthropology and uh, physiology and even a little bit of business. Um, um, when they talk about like the, the Nike uh, running shoes, fascinating book this year. Would you say you have outgrown your space pajamas or you're still into fiction? <laughs> <laughs> um, not enough into fiction. I need to read more. I, tr I try to bounce between a fictional book and a, uh, and, and a business book. Uh, the business books I tend to get through really quickly. Um, but yeah, I, I think certainly given the pandemic, it's been an escape to read, to read a bunch of fiction. Um, and, uh, I used to listen to a lot of podcasts, but almost all podcasts <laughs> the last six months have been about the pandemic. So they haven't been really a good escape from, from <laughs> a good mental escape from it. So I've kind of reverted back to, uh, to books and actually audiobooks. So while I'm, um, you know, biking or working out or, or, uh, you know, resting or before I go to sleep, I'll listen to, uh, listen to some audiobooks. What's the latest that you've been listening? Um, what did I just finish up? Um, I, I just started, so I, I don't remember what it's called. I just started another book about a, uh, by a, a, an Irish writer, my, my wife recommended, but um, I don't recall what it's called. Um, if that in your lifetime becomes actually a possibility, um, and that you know, might give you um, a rerun of um, your childhood. Uh, if SpaceX actually sends a mission to Mars, uh, yeah. would you buy a ticket? Uh, probably not for me. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you hate so much that you're going to buy it for? <laughs> <laughs> I do have some ideas there. Again, I'm not going to uh, disclose them publicly. Just but I tell you what, when I saw the the recent um, um, the, the the Mars landing last last week. Um, again, I got I got choked up. It just it brought me back to the time when I sat in front of the television with my father watching the the first moon landing. Uh, must have brought nostalgia. Yeah, he passed away a few years ago, so uh, I don't know. Just, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Back a bit of nostalgia. Um, do you remember your childhood? What was it like um, being with your father? What what did you <laughs> learn from him a lot? Um, I remember him teaching me how to program. He came home with one of the first computers in the neighborhood, uh, old uh, 
vector graphic MZ uh, CP, CPM machine um, you know, before the Apple II and all that. Um, and uh, you taught me how to, how to program. But then he, he admonished me and he said, listen, um, you know, that's a vocational field. He said, you know, you, you're uh, kind of a deeper thinker and, and, write, and a good writer and, you know, learn how to write and speak. Um, you know, programming is great. It'll take you so far, but, you know, learn how to, how to write and, and speak. And it's something that he never really learned to do well. And he always, um, you know, regretted it. And so didn't, didn't want that for me. So he ingrained for me from an early age to, to value the ability to communicate, um, not just in written code, but in, 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 in English. Such a wise lesson because from what I know um, now, um, when I hire a lot of people, engineers and other people, the only yeah. thing that they actually lack is to be able to communicate their ideas. And this is probably what you yeah. mentioned earlier that you know a lot of innovations simply get lost. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a there's a, a real epidemic right now of of a lack of data literacy. That's something we haven't haven't touched on yet. But uh, the ability for data people to commute to communicate with business people and vice versa. And so that that concept of data literacy or data fluency is a really hot topic now among organizations. We're building data literacy um, programs and training classes and and stuff for for companies to help them build their data-driven culture through a greater level of understanding of what is data, what does it mean, what are its limitations, what are different ways to express data and, and analytics, what's the difference between a data warehouse and a data lake, and why are data architecture so complicated and so forth. And so uh, I've really enjoyed actually training business people on the kind of the, the, the joys of, of uh, data and analytics. I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, that's a very good opportunity to um, answer a question that I get a lot. You know, I'm, at some point I'm thinking, you know, I should record a clip and you know, just send it out so that I don't have to answer that a lot. Um, and there's, there have been books, very good books written on that. Miko Yuki, I think, has written one about storytelling. Um, and I'm just wondering, this concept is really missing in the whole training and development and research and articles. You read uh, articles on Forbes, CIO, uh, Harvard Business Review, a lot about, um, you know, different things, technical things, nothing about the bigger picture, the storytelling. Tell us a little bit about uh, data literacy and how it connects with storytelling. And that's um, and that's what actually generates value for um, you know, business yeah. leaders. Data scientists have to realize that people consume information in different ways or prefer to consume information in different ways. And sometimes it's visual, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's more audible. Uh, sometimes it's in terms of a story, and I think most people respond to stories. If you think about the information that has lasted the longest in human history, they're stories. They're not data points, right? Mm. They're stories of, of that have been passed down from generation to generation. So there's something about a story that resonates and sticks in the brain. And so data scientists, rather than, again, just pro- providing pretty pie charts, ought to be encapsulating that information in a story that resonates with somebody that appeals to them, their you know, ethos, pathos, and, and logos, um, and uh, it's something that I think data scientists really need to get you know better trained on. Um, if that's certainly a self-fulfilling um, prophecy when you look at the um, biblical literature that we have um, and other religions as well. You know, these are stories that are handed down from people to other people, um, and only now we have actually have the. Con- computational power to use transformers and other techniques to be able to make sense of that word clouds. Um, mm-hmm. Just tell a little bit about, um, you briefly mentioned storytelling, but tell, you are the one who um, have sit through the board meetings and C-suite employees a lot. 
tell them what actually are they looking for? Because, you know, as data scientists, we can complicate things a lot. And when I mean a lot, that means enormous. Um, so what are your some of your advices, uh, advice to people who are working with analytics um, um, and trying to find a better way to pitch it? Yeah. So at a corporate level, be aware of what the corporate drivers are. You know, what what are, you know, look at the annual report, even for your own company. Understand how the company is measuring itself. How are employees being um, incented? Um, and those are the things that you should drive perhaps the, the analytics at. Also understand people's personas. And so anytime that we're producing analytics for um, a, a user community, we try to understand the different personas within that user community um, and, and how they like consuming information, what their uh, you know, personalities are what's driving them professionally and so forth. Um, and then using that to um, inform how we're going to inform them. Um, do you have a certain preference over the visualization um, that are more conducive to human cognition, like pie charts or uh, bar charts, um, spider? Animation. I think animation is something that resonates more with people. If you can show the motion of, of some kind of change over time, I also think uh, that people resonate more with predictive and prescriptive kinds of analytics than just hindsight-oriented analytics. So when I see a chart going like this and then stopping at today, I'm like, well, that, that's great. How, how does that help me? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if you can't predict what's going to happen in the future, or at least show me some scenarios of what can happen given certain kinds of conditions, um, then that's really just not terribly valuable to me. It's, it's, it's infotainment. It's not... It's not actionable. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just wondering, there are so many tools out there today um, that brings a lot of uh, people who are in C-suite or um, have more of a management background come into the technical side also. Um, yeah. More and more um, visualization, graphic user interfaces coming into the analysis, neural networks, machine learning algorithms, your tools like K9, um, H2O, uh, then we have PyCarrot. Uh, and I was just wondering, uh, would that actually threaten uh, the role of big, um, the data, uh, the technical side of the company? You already talked about uh, the uselessness yeah. of <laughs> CIO. Yeah, yeah, so. Those tools are certainly going to enable the citizen data scientist, as, as it's called. And the Gartner actually initiated the term. But you know, wants to explore data and develop insights. Um, those kinds of, of tools are, are certainly going to, to help them. Um, also, tools that help aggregate data and integrate data, uh, self-service data integration tools as well um, can enable business people. Um, but they become dangerous. You know, They're dangerous if they're not trained on on um, on data literacy, then it becomes uh, becomes a risk for an organization to put those tools into the hands of of business people that um, you know don't understand the limitations of data or the limitations of of analytics. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, I'm really a big fan of of natural language query technologies, and I, I keep scratching my head wondering why they haven't become more prominent than than they have. People still, whatever for whatever reason continue to love pointing and clicking and dragging and dropping to create analytics. I'm not sure why. <clears throat> why shouldn't we be speaking to our systems the same way that we speak to, you know, Siri or, you know, Alexa or, or, or Google Home? Um, you know, there have been technologies around for, that I worked with uh, almost 30 years ago, a, a product called Intellect, which is now baked into a, a, a product from a company called EasyAsk. Um, and uh, it, it's a conversational 
capability. You know, we, you can't have a conversation with Siri or Google or or uh, or you know uh, Alexa right now. It's a it's a uni um, directional kind of kind of you know question and respond. Um, but there have been technologies around for a long time that can maintain the context of the conversation um, in in exploring you know exploring data. And I just I have no idea why they haven't become more more prominent in in the industry. I think one of the heating, um, heated debates, um, which is um, quite rampant these days, is about the commercial release of um, the robot um, Sophie, um, which you can, by the way, have a conversation with, and a fairly decent one. Yep. Uh, Tony Reb Robbins actually had um, a conversation with him, which to me sounded quite okay-ish uh, for the beginning. And then we have Baby Axe, uh, which is a baby um, that seems very real um, and, and is able to respond to you in very cute ways. And I was just wondering, do you see future of these technologies as well? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know much about them, um, but it did remind me of something. I actually saw, it was the last year, where there were some um, top college debaters debating against a computer system, and it was a really fascinating exercise. So um, I'd encourage people to check that out. I was just trying to find a link on it, but I, I can't right now. Um, it, it, what was the basic premise of? Uh... It was like you know, I don't know, Cambridge and Oxford or Harvard debaters debating against a uh, a computer system. Oh, okay. Um, I think you are old enough to have um, coincided with the time when IBM Watson was for in, in first mm -hmm. development or actually won the quiz competition. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you recall uh, from this groundbreaking uh, moment? Um, I think you have a lot of them, you know, yeah. from moon landing and everything. Here, here's what I recall. <clears throat> okay. I recall watching Ken Jennings' frustration in clicking in on the button, right? He knew the answers, but he couldn't beat Watson to, to buzz in. That's so for sure. I, I, looked into that, I looked into that, and I learned that Watson was hardwired into the signal-ready indicator. So it could respond in nanoseconds, whereas it takes a human 400 milliseconds to respond. So... IBM Watson didn't win because it was, you know, smarter or, or knew more. It won because it could buzz in quicker. And I actually validated that with an IBM um, engineer who, who had blogged on it. And then I guess IBM took that blog down. <laughs> so it's <laughs> interesting to look into. It was, it was IBM's Watson's ability to physically interact, not, um, not cognitively interact, that, that won the competition. Yeah, I think this is what actually gives uh, computers an, an edge over um, human cognition. Um, we'll talk about convolution net, uh, neural networks um, that has become the um, daddy technology in Tesla, and it's finding its path uh, and tracking. Uh, and uh, the social argument kind of resonates with me that Elon Musk makes that you know it's more safe than the human driver. And I was just wondering, what's your take on that? Uh, would you buy one? Yes, safer safer than the average human driver. Driver, yes, and and probably safer than than even you know me as a driver. The the challenge is in the the ethical decisions that need to be made, um, you know, when when there's an incident, and they tend to vary by culture. So I don't know that Tesla is is ready to make decisions about whether uh, if there's some kind of situation whether it runs over the child or whether it runs over the the elderly person, right? That kind of decision differs from culture to culture. Um, I think there was a great, um, I don't remember, it was MIT study, I think, a few years ago looking into that. And so until they can not only bake the proper ethics into the system, but allow the user 
to tune the ethics to their own their own personal preferences. What does it mean? Then, um, then there's always going to be this debate about whether it's safer than 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 a human. Um, tell me more about it. What do you mean baking ethics? How is that possible? Um, if a if a computer driven car has to make a decision, mm -hmm. okay, and that decision involves running over someone versus running over somebody else or injuring the driver or injuring the passenger or injuring a group of people versus an individual person, you know, those decisions have to be made, you know, in real time. And we as humans, you know, don't know really how we calculate them in real time. And maybe we probably make wrong calculations all, all the time about that. But making that kind of ethical decision-making into the system is, is going to become, um, uh, be, become critical. It's very funny that, you know, the only two options is to choose between who they run over instead of, you know, putting a break to that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you consider that, that there's another option called breaks? Yeah, well, maybe there's ice or maybe you can't break in time. Right. But yeah. yeah but then that would be a technical right. uh, mistake that they cannot actually. And maybe break um, fast. You know, there's a there's a 18 wheels, uh, 18 wheeler semi right behind you. Right. So there's all sorts of, you know, things that have to be kind of factored in. I wish all of um, Elon's endeavors were that innocuous. Um, right. Let's talk a little bit about um, the other one that um, he's currently um, testing on animals. In Sweden, they're already, you know, implanting chips um, in their bodies um, right. so that, you know, they can, for some reason, gain faster access. And um, Neuralink seems to be um, the extension of that. Um, for the skeptics, it's a huge no. Um, even the research, they want to shut it down. Uh, for the promising ones, they're all up for that. Where yeah. do you stand on the spectrum? I think it's inevitable that really you know, humans are going to find ways to enhance ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I think at any given point in time along our, our journey as humans, they're going to, we're going to have to put up, again, some kind of ethical, you know, roadblocks. But I think over time, it's it's inevitable that we uh, enhance and supplement our own, you know, limited biological capabilities. What are the three facts that amazes you every single time that you listen to them, despite um, years of having heard that them? I listen to to whom? Three amazing facts that you know. Three things that amazes you that um, you know they exist or anything. Hmm. Um, it, it, one, and I guess more recently, it amazes me how many people, how such a large percentage of a population can, let me be careful about this, can use obviously fake false data in decision making. Mm -hmm. That's one. Not to be political or anything. So that that amazes me um, that they they and I guess it's human nature to gravitate toward data that um, aligns with your own your worldview, right? Mm -hmm. um, but wow, <laughs> all I got to okay. say, um, and um, yeah, and it amazes me that. Um, <clears throat> how many people continue to vote against their own self-interests? Okay, only if they knew that that's, that, that's against similar, their interests. Similar, but that that also amazes me. Uh -huh. um, and uh, that also amazes me. 
it just it continues to amaze me how much good there is in the world as well. And, and that doesn't get enough attention. That's for true. You know, yeah. um, that's actually a psychological fact. You know, it takes five good experiences to yes. forget one bad experience. Yeah. People are in tuned to um, take their negative experiences more seriously than the good ones. Right. I, I've long told my wife, who's a, a, a former news producer with uh, CNN and, and NBC News, and I said, listen, I would love it if they just had a news program that was just like happy news, right? It's all <laughs> good in the world. And I would watch it. It's not going to sell it. <laughs> You know, episode of that every, every day, um, and she says she she's like it wouldn't sell. It wouldn't mm -hmm. sell. That's uh, for sure. And I think I think for your, your reason, but I sure love so to see somebody try. Uh, that's a good idea. How would that actually look like? <laughs> happy news. Happy news. <laughs> we could all use a, a bit of happy news right now. Yeah, uh, and what would be the lo logo? Would it be like SpongeBob or? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, great being with you. I really, uh, re really appreciate the time. Ah, uh, sure. Um, you got to run. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Sure. Then let's give them the final question. Um, right. If there is, you have a child of your own now, um, yep. and for people around the world, uh, what does the future hold for another uh, twelve-year-old wearing a space pajama? Um, I, I told my son, you know, when he was younger, and I still think this is, is I, th I said, um, human mortality for him and his generation and people of means um, will become an option. Thank you. By the time he is in his 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you know, I think there'll be, be a way to capture an individual's essence and per perpetuate it. What better uh, message to end on, um, if not that? Thank you so much uh, so for I, being with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So I told my son to to say hello to my great, 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 great grandchildren. So <laughs> that would be great. For everyone else, thank you so much for um, tuning in. You can have the conversations on Slack um, and check out the podcast on uh, Apple, Google, and uh, Spotify. See you next week uh, with another guest. Thank you so much. Thank you. Real pleasure. <laughs>